0: Welcome to the ASCA Viewpoints Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Jill Creighton, your Viewpoints host. Today's podcast features Al Stelnick and Jordan McClendon. Al Stelnick serves as the Student Conduct Officer for Seneca College in Toronto, Ontario in Canada, and Jordan is the current Resident Student Conduct Coordinator at Carleton University, also in Canada. He's up in Ottawa. Carleton University is a large public institution, and Jordan has worked at three other institutions over his career, acquiring experience in student conduct administration, curriculum development, and learning assessment. Jordan holds a Master's of Education from Memorial University in Newfoundland, with a focus Non-Academic Student Conduct, and he also sits on a number of national and international committees, including acting as the co-chair for the Canadian region of ASCA. This week it's also Canadian Thanksgiving, so I wish you both and all of our Canadian listeners a happy Thanksgiving. I am so excited to have with me today Jordan McClendon. Jordan is the Residence Student Conduct Coordinator at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada, and Jordan is also one of our ASCA co-region chairs for the Canadian region. So welcome, Jordan.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on. It's exciting to be here. I'm, I'm happy to be having this chat with you.
0: And you know, as ASCA continues to expand, we have really, really welcomed a lot of Canadian colleagues into the fold as of the last really, I think, three or four years especially. So what brought you into the ASCA family?
1: I think honestly it was it was pretty lucky. It was a I started my position at Carleton University in student conduct and fortunately we um, have opportunities to pursue professional development and my supervisor asked me, you know, what organizations do you want to be a part of? Are there any opportunities out there that you're really interested in pursuing? And it was really a, a quick Google search and I, I found ASCA. They were the, the the top one to come up and uh, I was taken to their website and I read a little bit more about it, looked through some of their publications and things and, and it looked like a pretty great opportunity. And so I took that back to my supervisor and, and was fortunate to attend my first ASCA conference, I guess, three years ago now, um, and really have, have been trying to get more involved ever since.
0: Can you talk a little, little bit about kind of the growth that you've seen from the Canadian membership over the last couple of years?
1: Definitely, yeah. I, I remember uh, my first conference feeling pretty overwhelmed, uh, showing up thinking I might be Really, the only Canadian there, um, and quickly realized that that wasn't the case. There was quite a small group of us, but certainly passionate and friendly and welcoming, and and really uh, sort of helped me find my way into the organization as as a lot of them had been to previous conferences. But we were pretty small, I would say no more than than 10 or 15 of us, if that. And I think since then, every year I've gone, uh, it's grown. This past year, in Jacksonville was really great. We had our first official regional meeting, which was was pretty awesome to be a part of, and, and really had some really good conversations around how can we become more involved in the organization and how do we how do we give back to you know ASCA since we're, we feel like we're taking a lot and getting a lot of good information. How can we contribute back? And and I think every year our numbers have grown as well. I, I think we were up over twenty or twenty five this year, and I certainly. Anytime anyone asks me about student conduct, um, one of the first things I recommend is is looking up ASCA and, and if possible, attending or at least taking in a webinar or, or reading the resources on their website. I think it's a great opportunity to continue to try and grow our presence within ASCA.
0: One of the things that we've been focused on and you and I have talked about a lot is the unique needs of Canadian professionals in the student conduct profession, specifically because, you know, the laws and policies that we're really concerned with here uh, down in the U.S. are just really not applicable to what you're doing up north. Um, So you can can you talk a little bit about, you know, some of those unique considerations or things that the Canadian members are thinking about that maybe U.S. members might not be aware of?
1: Sure. Yeah, I mean, I can try. It's, It's it's Pretty huge task to to speak for all Canadians. I don't know if I'm, <laughs> no, I'm certainly not, not the person to do that. Not asking but you to speak own...
0: on behalf of your country, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, just from your own lens, your own not. experience.
1: Yeah, my own experience. I, I think having been to Garing and having gone to the annual conference a few times, I think you start to develop an ability to to pull out the key information, and I think the big one that sticks out in my mind and, and also one that I've heard a lot of my Canadian colleagues talk about is, you know, Title IX is all they talk about and Title ix this and, and compliance and all that. But I, I say back to them, you know, whether you call it Title IX or you call it sexual violence, you're still talking about the same thing. You're still talking about how are we doing investigations? How are we adjudicating? How are we supporting survivors? And, and all of that stuff is transferable. And so I think it is really easy to get hung up on the language or the the titles or or the words being used but if you can see past that really there's a lot of transferable stuff and and certainly the other one that comes up a lot is I think you guys have FERPA or is that your privacy legislation in Canada we have FIPA which is very similar and and I think by the sounds of it from what I've heard so far we apply certain parts of it differently but there's still a lot of sort of foundational information that can be applied across the board. And it's just getting it out of your head that, you know, this is too American or this is not for me because it says Title IX or it says FERPA or it says OCR on it. When in fact, a lot of the same concepts that you're talking about are applicable. And and the other important thing that I've found is in the U S you guys seem to be going through things first, which (laughs) to our benefit, allows us to learn from what's going on. I think, you know, in, in Ontario in the problem time and where we've adopted sexual violence legislation and, and it came into place in January of this past year, we've had to have all higher ed institutions had to have a, a sexual violence policy on their campus and you know, it's work that was being done in the US that certainly guided and, and helped people make decisions who are writing these policies and so I think it's easy to say, oh, it's not applicable, or I, I, I can't learn anything, but it, if you take the time to to see past sort of the the words you guys are using, there's a lot of valuable information. And on the flip side, I think it, it's important to remember that there's a lot of great stuff going on in Canada, too, and, and that's why sort of in the last question you asked me about growing the Canadian presence, I think it's so important for us to, to come to ASCA and, and share what we're doing, too, because they... You know, the more people looking at an issue, the more likely we are to find a solution to it. And so I really try to encourage people to present and get involved and share the content of what we're doing up here to sort of supplement the things that are going on down in the U.S.
0: It's an incredibly important voice to have at the table, especially because I think it helps everyone to broaden our cultural context and understanding about how uh, you know, everyone looks at the same issue from a different lens. But I want to back up for a second. You've mentioned a couple of different pieces of Canadian legislation that you work with on a daily basis. The first one is FIPA. I believe that's F I P P A, is that correct?
1: I believe so, yeah.
0: What does FIPA stand for?
1: Oh, you put me
0: on the spot. <laughs> we can we can look that up later um
1: <laughs>
0: but i think it's important for you know for especially us american conduct officers to know and to remember that you know the the laws and the privacy pieces that affect us are um always spoken about from such a us centric lens um we often forget that student conduct is an applicable profession worldwide um asca has partners in the philippines uh we have members in 11 countries and uh you know, we're always working to pull the language back from FERPA to privacy laws or Title IX to sexual misconduct or due process to fundamental fairness and find ways to make sure that it's applicable. Uh, the other thing that you mentioned, Jordan, was the sexual misconduct uh, legislation that came back recently in January. Uh, what's the name of that legislation, if you know? It's Mostly you known
1: as Bill 138. Um, that was the bill that was passed
0: Bill 138.
1: Was last year.
0: Yeah. All right. So you say Bill 138 to uh, any Canadian uh, student conduct officer, and they're going to be able to say, yes, this is the sexual misconduct bill.
1: Uh, yeah. I think it would be just normally, more normally known as the sexual violence bill or sexual misconduct bill. Um, but yeah, I, I would hope that most conduct <laughs> people would know Bill 138 would be related to that.
0: So other than requiring every institution to have a policy about sexual violence, uh, what else does uh, Bill 138 require?
1: Um, there's some proactive measures in it as well. And, and, uh, and there's a lot of focus also put on um, education and support and um, ensuring that we're doing more than just the reactive side. It talked about, in particular information uh, or educational um, measures for young men, specifically post-secondary institutions, that was a major piece. And then again, what supports are we having on campus that are dedicated to survivors and and for our students to, whether it's from an education perspective or a a support perspective, I wouldn't consider myself the expert, certainly on, on bill 138 and, and, I work out of a residence context. So in my, my work, more realistically, I'm, I'm listening to what the university wants us to do. And so our sexual violence policy was is sort of housed under the office of the vice president of student enrollment and then our equity services. And so I'm sort of a cog in the wheel of <laughs> what our institution is doing for, for sexual violence. And they would certainly know more of the, the specifics to the bill.
0: How has it changed what you're doing in your practice? How has it changed your day-to-day operation? To be honest,
1: not a, not a ton. I think I'm a lot closer, I guess. I, I engage with students on a regular basis. I meet with students involved uh, with cases of sexual violence or sort of consult with the director of my department and the assistant director of my department on, on cases of sexual violence where I find I have the most touch points with it is, is talking to our student staff about how are they engaging with students who are coming to them with disclosures and what do we want them to respond with. I do some proactive training for our students and residents, um, uh, bystander intervention. And then I, we're, we're looking to increase our, our training for our department overall, whether it's for our live-in professionals, uh, which I think you guys think of as hall directors is, is a pretty common Phrase of that and, and and also my own training of how are we um, responding to disclosures and how are we sort of moving students into this sexual violence policy that's now been created to ensure that they're getting what they need from the institution overall I think the toughest point is a lot of students don't want to engage in a formalized process and I don't know if that's something that that you found happens in the U.S. or in all the other countries that you're more familiar with than I am, but a lot of our students, unfortunately, are not interested in a formal process and don't want to have an investigation happen and don't want really anything to happen to the respondents. They just kind of want to tell someone and not want to have to see that person every day. I think is the most common thing I've experienced in the students I've met with. And so at a residence level, we're trying to navigate how do we do that while still doing our part to ensure that the policy is being followed. And that that so far seems the most tricky part.
0: So it's the what we would call in the US the reasonable accommodation piece uh, during the investigation, any conclusions? Exactly yeah, and, and but how do you I guess more of a question, but how
1: do you reasonably accommodate when the survivor doesn't want the respondent to even know anything and and that that's become a real challenge. You know, they they don't want them living on the floor. They don't want to see them at the cafeteria or at the gym. But they also don't want them to know that they've come forward and told anyone about what's happening.
0: I think that's a a really common challenge uh, that folks kind of working with sexual misconduct cases all over the the country and the world are struggling with. And it's so institutionally dependent on our resources and and what we can do. Uh, You know, for example, there are large Mm -hmm. state schools with, Sixty thousand students on campus, where that's a much easier task than a small private institution that might have a total student body of a thousand students. Um, so Definitely yeah, something that I think Title IX coordinators are really struggling with. And uh, would there be a, a term or a word for a Title IX coordinator equivalent as a result of Bill One Thirty Eight?
1: Um, they're they're starting to become more and more frequent, especially with the the legislation um i've heard them called case managers uh i've also heard them called social violence coordinators um i think it varies based on the institution um a lot of i'm finding a lot of people in those roles generally come from a social work background mm-hmm. um and, and those are the type of people filling those roles and moving into those roles um and that's where i think the case manager sort of title comes from i would say
0: Much different take on it. I think uh, down in the U.S. we've got a lot of folks with law backgrounds that are taking on those positions. So it's a a much different viewpoint to take on a social work kind of angle.
1: Yeah, it is interesting, certainly. And and I don't know one more qualified than the other. And I I also think the processes are are slightly different from from my limited knowledge. It seems like um, there's a little more litigation in the U.S. And that maybe a law background would lend itself – better to navigating those waters where you know there's certainly we certainly have a legal system and it gets invoked all the time but I I don't know um, if that's as central a focus as supporting students and and ensuring that uh, people are feeling safe and and able to continue on in their education or whatever they want to do.
0: Now Jordan I I know that your role is based out of residence life. Uh, Is it is it common for student conduct professionals at Canadian institutions of higher ed to have multiple parts of their roles? So for example, conduct being only one piece of a very large portfolio?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, like the, the sexual violence positions we were talking about, I think it's more common to start to see these conduct positions popping up and, and certainly in residence. Uh, I know that I'm gaining more and more colleagues all the time with people who are specifically doing student conduct and residence. Um, but I would say it's more common for, for our living professionals or we call them residence life coordinators or residence life managers or residence managers to be doing that work sort of on the side of their desk, as well as assistant directors and directors to be doing that sort of on the side of their desk. Um, the odd school has a position like mine that's specific to student conduct, and and I think those are the schools that are really starting to make some positive changes when it comes to student conduct because they have someone thinking about these things full time. But it's definitely more common for our housing professionals to be doing student conduct off the side of their desk as part of a much larger portfolio of all the other things they're doing, including building management and student staff management and programming and the list goes on and on
0: definitely so it's a full-time residence management portfolio along with whatever happens inside of your buildings
1: of course yeah and I think part of that comes from the the there's no student conduct graduate degree in Canada and there's you know there's only a few um, post these master degrees or advanced degrees and, and I think Canada or Canadians are getting better at pursuing those advanced degrees, but we certainly we don't, we don't look to hire our live-in staff from a pool of graduate students. Generally, they're, they're students' staff that have come up and have gone through our programs and have excelled and are looking to, to move into the world professionally and then maybe start a graduate degree.
0: So you're looking at a lot of undergraduates who maybe served in a residence advisor type of capacity?
1: Definitely. Yeah, for sure.
0: What types of incidents are most common in your particular world? Uh, Are you seeing a lot of alcohol and drug concerns like we do in the U.S., or are there other things that you see more often?
1: I would say drugs are number one, and and the number one of drugs would be marijuana use. Uh, That's certainly... The thing that dominates my day for the most part is is meeting with students and thinking of different ways to address marijuana use in our residences and on campus, um, which is interesting because our prime minister just <laughs> told everyone that we're going to be legalizing marijuana by next summer, um, and so that has thrown a bit of a wrinkle into the student conduct world here in Canada. Um, it'll be interesting to see when more information about that comes out, but but I would say by far marijuana is the number one uh, concern that we deal with on a daily basis. Um, alcohol is high in September. Uh, the amount of incidents, I would say, that's when our greatest amount of incidents are, is right at the beginning of the, the academic year, and then from September, the end of September on, it decreases pretty quickly, um, and we don't see nearly as many issues um, as we do marijuana.
0: So, thinking about the alcohol culture, I believe the drinking age in the province of Ontario is 19, is that correct? Yes. So, how does that change and impact uh, the alcohol concerns that you deal with?
1: Um, we're unique in, in Ottawa in that we're a cab ride away from the province of Quebec, where the drinking age is 18. So, generally, our students come to school at 18 or turning 18, um, and then immediately can go to Quebec and consume alcohol legally. Um, and so we deal a lot with sort of the fallout of that, I guess, when they come home from, from being over in Quebec, um, that's certainly for us to manage. And I I think that's why we don't see the numbers of, of violations related to alcohol is because generally they're taking it off campus. And then when they come back, we're less inclined to to document a violation, and more inclined to be there from a support perspective to ensure that they're okay, that they've found their way back to their room, that they're going to bed, maybe somebody's taking care of them, things like that. You know? So I don't, I wouldn't say that that's common across the province, um, but I think that explains a lot of our alcohol culture around here is that it's it's taken over to Quebec. Our students head over that way.
0: It's an interesting uh, interesting part of Canadian knowledge that I'm not sure many U.S. Americans would have is that the provinces are responsible for setting their own legal drinking ages, whereas uh, the prime minister and what's happening kind of for the the country as a whole isn't impacted in the same way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely unique. I think it's... I, I can't imagine life in the U.S. where... You know, your students are coming in at 18 or 17 or 19 and then they're waiting three more years really to be legal, <laughs> to, to consume alcohol, right? Like to be 21 and, and I'm not naive enough to think that that's <laughs> stopping underage consumption, but it seems like it's something that, that has to be paid more attention to in the U S knowing that there are th- a lot of students, maybe three or four years out from being legal, legal age to consume alcohol versus Our students who can get in a cab or an Uber and and in 20 minutes be in a province where they are legal.
0: I think it's, uh, you know, the biggest challenge for student conduct officers across the country is, you know, we look at our first year students coming in, many of whom have never had any experiences with alcohol. Uh, You know, I don't think any conduct officer is naive enough to think that the drinking age prevents our students from engaging in alcohol use. Um, but what it does pose is a challenge to us to educate our students differently than you might do in Canada because our students don't have the same high school experiences um, that students mm-hmm. might have in Ottawa.
1: Yeah, and I would say with both drugs and alcohol, at least at, at Carleton, we really take a harm reduction perspective. It's it's a lot less about enforcement of policy and laws and of course we're doing those things but but they sort of come secondary to how are we educating our students about these substances how are we encouraging safe behavior and and um, responsible behavior and you know not condoning it so much and saying they're just going to drink or smoke anyway but how do we provide them with information so at least they're making an educated decision and at least they're they're doing it in a responsible way whether it's you know Ensuring that a sober friend is with them, or ensuring that someone's going to stop by later and check on them, or ensuring that they're in a large group and things like that. So mm-hmm. um, that's really been great since I've come to Carlton, is the, the shift in focus from you know you have a violation related alcohol, here's your fine or here's your outcome or whatever. To you know how can we talk about this? How can we ensure that you learn from this mistake, but also prepare to for the next time that you find yourself in a situation to make a decision like
0: this. Educational process. We like those lenses in student conduct. Jordan, how did you get into student conduct?
1: Uh, I came up through residence. Um, I was a student staff in my undergrad. um, And then I moved institutions and became a professional staff member. Um, Similar to a hall director, like I said, I was a residence life coordinator Um, And I did that for a few years and and found that um, the meetings I was having with students around behavior and student conduct were uh, my favorite part. I I felt like I was really having the most impact. I was really taking a lot of meaning out of the conversations I was having with students um, and the opportunities that come with the captive audience of having a student sitting across from you. they're in a really unique position to learn i find and and you know i i enjoyed the other aspects of my job I, I worked with some great student staff i was in a great department but what really stuck with me was the amount of impact i could have sitting across from a student and talking about you know what happened to them last night or a couple nights ago and, and what they were going to do differently and what they had learned from it and, um fortunately carlton um was one of those schools to create a student conduct position in residence. And, uh, I left with the chance to, to sort of do that full time. I think as a, as a residence life coordinator is the the thing I really enjoyed the most and, and something I like to think I'm half decent at. And and it was kind of just a natural fit. Um, it's been that way ever since I, I still love it every day. I I really enjoy the best part of what I do is, is certainly meeting the students.
0: I think that's, um, all of us who work in student conduct, our favorite part is getting to know our students one-on-one. Uh, is there a particular case that you can recall without violating FIPA um, that kind of gives you the warm fuzzies or, or makes you remember the good parts about why we do this work? Yeah, yeah, I, I
1: think I think fortunately that's, that's pretty easy. We uh, In my first year, um, I had a student end up in my office um, for a significant amount of damage he did in, in the residence halls. Um, we have those sort of drop ceilings in some of our halls um, and they had smashed a bunch of the ceiling tiles so much so that they had rang up quite a bill about <laughs> uh, for damages. Um, and they came into my office um, and from the moment they, they walked in and shook my hand and sat down, I could tell that I wasn't sitting with the average student. I think it's as hard as we try to not have preconceived notions at times you, at least I like to think I have an idea of what's coming into my office or how the conversation could go. And, and right from the moment I met the student, I could tell that, that he was different. I could tell he's unique and you could tell that the behavior that he was meeting with me for wasn't common to him. I think he seemed like a student that was at a place, uh, sort of a fork in the road. They could, could go and continue on with what they were doing. Um, they were developing a pretty solid relationships with substance use, um, and continue down that path, um, and probably find their way out of residence before the end of the term, or they could take this as an opportunity to sort of shift gears and and shake things up a little bit and go the other way, um, and sort of turn over a new leaf, if you will. And, and based on our conversation, I could tell that the student was ready to do that. They they weren't interested in continuing down a, a bad pathway. They weren't interested in continuing to be the the person that they or the image that they kind of built up for themselves as the partier or the the person getting into trouble or the uh, the person who is drinking or smoking or whatnot, but they, they knew they were they were expecting more from themselves. And, and when I picked up on that, I, I really just tried to run with it. And I guess long story short, he, he turned out to be one of our staff members by the following year. So he came in as a student staff member, um, continued to learn about residents and our residence program here and what we're trying to do. Um, after his first year as a student staff, uh, he turned into one of our senior student staff. We call the community advisors here um, and work directly for me. I supervise the community advisors um, and their student staff who do hundred percent student conduct. And so he took on a role of leadership within our student staff team um, really in just a couple of years from sitting in my office um, with the opportunity for things to just continue to get worse or, to try something new and, and he was able to take that opportunity to try something new. And it has really paid off. He's one of our, our best student staff members. He's coming back next year to work with me again. Um, and, and I guess every time I really meet with him, every time I chat with him, I, I'm kind of amazed at the growth he continues to have. He, he hasn't become complacent. Um, he continues to try and push himself and learn more. So I, I think, That's probably the best story I can think of of why we do this work. I think I have countless others, but certainly by far he's the easiest to justify.
0: I love those stories where we have students who meet with us because they've made a a bad decision or have had something derail their paths, and the conduct program can really be an area of support for students. I think that's one of the biggest things that um, we're missing as conduct officers in terms of telling our stories to the broader campus communities is, you know, when we do this work, well, our students blossom and it's incredible.
1: Yeah, it's really great. And, and we're fortunate. We have a, a program we call Residence bounce back here. Um, and, and we pair our students with sort of senior students within the residence community. Um, sort of our students that are our heavy hitters, if you will, or, or ones that we're, we're seeing more frequently that are maybe on their way out of residence and, and, Um, we're actually able to keep a lot of them in residence by pairing them with these student staff mentors. Um, and along with being a community advisor, he's also one of our, our senior back bounce back facilitators. And I think the first time I met him, he would have been the perfect candidate to go into the program as a student. And now I see him as one of the leaders of this program and and someone who's contributing to its success and helping, helping other first year students learn from his experience.
0: Can you talk a little bit more about the bounce back program and what that entails?
1: Sure. Um, so it it really is a peer to peer program. Um, we we do hiring; they're a paid position for our student staff, and um, they go through uh, a couple weekends of training, um, and then each one of our facilitators is paired with up to five different students that they meet with once a week individually. Um, and their responsibilities are, are to, to meet and chat with the students, talk about what's going on, act as sort of a role model, act as a mentor, and also just act as a, a friendly ear, listening ear. And, uh, we've had a ton of su- success with, with some of our students who were really challenging and really difficult, um, having them really turn things around and become positive members of our community because they've had, an example they kind of look at and the program is based on the stages of change model. Um, and the, the facilitators work with each individual student based on where they're at. Um, and success looks differently depending on the student who's enrolled in the program. But, um, it's really been a great way for us to, to encourage learning and encourage more positive behavior in our communities. I mean, I think, Learning something from a peer is so much more impactful than than listening to somebody in their office sitting at a computer, you know, telling you that you should behave differently. I I think that certainly has its place and its value, but some of the biggest behavior changes I've seen have come as a result of of peer-to-peer exchanges.
0: That program sounds awesome, and I I really hear a conference presentation in your future from that one. (laughs) (laughs) I hope that you uh, choose to share that a little bit more in depth and more widely with the community. I think that'd be a great one.
1: Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see what I can do. <laughs> uh,
0: well, Jordan, is there anything else that you'd like the listeners to know?
1: Um, I don't think so. I, I, you know, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you today. Um, I think I'll just say again that there's, there is a lot of great stuff going on in Canada, that especially related to student conduct. Um, sometimes we do things differently. Sometimes we, we call things by a different name, but um, myself and my colleagues are really trying to, to continue to push the bar and, and really get to a place where um, student conduct is recognized on a, on a larger stage. And I think, as a closing thought, you know, we're fortunate here in Canada that I feel like we operate at times with a lot less restriction, and that's something I picked up just by attending various ASCA events. I think so much of what student conduct workers in the U.S. do is is dictated by legislation or laws or, or um, compliance regulations and things like that, and, and fortunately, we don't have to operate in, under such – uh, restricted circumstances and and that allows us an element of creativity that I think is unique to Canada and, and I think I, I hope that Canadians are more willing to share that CA in the future because I think we're doing some really unique stuff and I think um, we're fortunate to have the opportunity to look at things differently sometimes because we're not um, forced to comply with the law or forced to report things in a certain way or or something like that. I'm not sure if that makes sense at all.
0: Um, I really appreciate that. And I think that there's a lot of room for uh, you and your fellow Canadian colleagues to continue to teach and to share because that creativity, those unrestricted elements, uh, much like you, you mentioned spending a lot of time kind of translating information to your context. I think that goes both ways. Definitely. So, Jordan, if uh, folks want to reach you for follow-up questions or just to say hello, how can they find you?
1: Uh, well, I'm on Twitter at uh, AceJordan, uh, A-C-E-J-O-R-D-O-N. Uh, or my emails uh, Jordan jordanmcclendon at Carlton.ca
0: Thank you Jordan for sharing your viewpoint and we really appreciate you kicking off this dialogue about the needs of Canadian student conduct practitioners and we're going to go ahead and transition over to our conversation with Al Stelnick. I want to welcome to the podcast Al Stelnick. Al is the student conduct officer at Seneca College which is located in Ontario in Canada. Al looks after the King City campus, which is just outside of the Toronto area. Al also serves as one of the co-region chairs for the Canadian region in ASCA. So welcome, Al. All right. Thanks, Jill. I'm really glad to be talking to you today. Uh, we also had the opportunity to talk with the other Canadian region co-coordinator, Jordan, and he was really excited that we're going to be able to talk with you as well to share kind of the, the diversity of perspectives just amongst the leadership uh, in the Canadian region. That's great. So, Al, how did you get into student conduct? How did you find the profession?
2: Well, that's uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Uh question because I I kind of evolved into it. Uh, I've been working here at the college for almost 30 years and uh, when I was working in student services I was a student life coordinator, and uh, one of my directors said, "You know, you'd be really good in dealing with conflict and stuff." So, so, um, so I became after after uh, the student life coordinator, I became a, uh, a manager of student rights and responsibilities, and this was actually kind of new for us. And uh, and then. It evolved from there, and um, we, uh, my position as a manager of student rights and responsibilities got put into a different department, and we dealt with uh, diversity issues as well. We were called the Red Sea, which is uh, an acronym for Resolution, Equity, and Diversity Center. So it was a pretty big department that dealt with a lot of things. And then um, over the past couple of years, actually, time goes by so quick, it's probably more like six or seven years now, uh, we focus strictly on conduct. That's how I I came about into this position.
0: And what does conduct look like on your campus? How does your process work? How does it work? Yeah, like what's the general format? I mean, a lot of campuses run different processes involving hearing panels, or some of it's only one-on-one resolution. Um, What does Seneca do?
2: Well, it all depends. It all depends on the uh, the incident, and this is how uh, you know things differ a little bit uh, uh, from our campuses in Canada to to uh, your campuses in the states. We're not as judicial as um, as you are in the states, or as I think you are in the states. Mm-hmm. And um, depending on the nature of the incident. If there's an opportunity to resolve it informally and and make it uh, an educational experience, we we much rather do that than be punitive.
0: Can you give me an um, example of how that looks?
2: Okay, so uh, for example, uh, a student who may be found on campus smoking marijuana, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than be purely punitive and And find the person we may uh, you know speak with him and have him write a reflective paper and actually, we wouldn't even find him for something like that it would be It would be a, you know something like a reflective paper on the dangers uh, or or why it's uh, you know not good to be smoking on campus or you know and or why you shouldn't be unless and, and of course it's got a, a prescription and that's a whole different story but uh, uh, we're trying we try to make it a, a positive experience
0: sure and what do you make of? Uh your prime minister are going to be legalizing marijuana for the whole country soon?
2: Well, I think it's interesting, you know, we'll see how that works out. I know that a few of your state in a few of your states, it's already illegal. And, uh, I've, spoken uh, spoke to some colleagues uh, across the border and it's not, not from what I understand, it's not a huge issue on campus.
0: It hasn't been. Uh, I used to work in the state of Colorado, which is one of the very first U.S. states to legalize. Uh, but it's still interesting down here because it's still considered a U.S. scheduled federal drug, meaning that uh, the federal government says that if, if someone's caught with a conviction with, with marijuana, uh, they treat it the same as they would in terms of like other hard drugs like heroin. And so it's classified the same, which is really fascinating. And that means that it impacts U.S. students' federal financial aid eligibility as well. So Mm -hmm. even though the states are saying, you know, this is completely permitted, our federal government hasn't changed the stance. And so we run up into some uh, sovereignty conflict.
2: Yeah, I I can imagine. I'm not sure how it's going to work here. Um, I don't know what it's going to look like. Yeah, we're waiting for that uh, to unroll. So keep our fingers crossed and hope everything works out well.
0: Good choice of words, the unrolling. I like it. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but Al, how did you end up finding ASCA?
2: Well, that's uh, that's another interesting story. Uh, a long, a long, a long time ago, before it was ASCA, it was uh, Student uh, Judicial Affairs.
0: Right, ASJA. Uh,
2: yeah, I attended a conference at Queen's University in, uh, in Kingston, Ontario, and it was sponsored by uh, the the uh, Association for Student Judicial Affairs, and um, I became interested in it. I always ha- had wanted to attend the Gehring Institute mm-hmm. after that conference, which I never have yet, but I, I still want to. One day. And, uh, pardon me?
0: One day, we'll get you down here.
2: <laughs> One day I'll be there for sure, but um, but anyhow, I've always had a keen interest in it. And then when our department changed focuses and was strictly uh, conduct, then I wanted to get involved into it. And I had the opportunity to uh, get down to the conference on the first time. That's when I met you, and uh, and I've been interested in that in your organization in our organization ever since. And uh- I think it's a great organization.
0: Well, we love having you as part of the fold. Um, For the listeners who don't know, Al and I actually met right before the conference began. Uh, The board meeting had just concluded, and we were just about a day away ahead of pre-cons. And we met Al singing karaoke. Yeah. (laughs) As per tradition down uh, back when we were at St. Pete's Beach. So uh, I always look on that moment really fondly.
2: Yeah, it was a good time.
0: So, Al, you will forever be known as the founder of the Canadian region, uh, making that happen back at the business meeting in 2016. Can you talk to us a little bit about kind of how that came around, how that came to be, and what you've been doing since?
2: How it came to be was uh, I, I felt that we needed to be more involved. And I thought I thought because I, I really value the ASCA, and I, I think there's a lot that we can learn from it. I, I got a lot of feedback actually prior uh, to going down and saying, Well, you know it 's all american it 's all focused on american stuff and and you know it doesn 't fit us and blah 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 blah, all the negative stuff. however, you know when I, the first time I was down there, I realized no they 're wrong because a lot of it focuses on how to handle certain situations. okay, the laws are different, but the the details on you know how to handle different investigations and things like that. That's all transferable skills. It doesn't matter. The borders aren't important there because it doesn't require any kind of law. Uh, so there was a lot of things that were re- really good. And I felt that we uh, in Canada were really kind of lacking this kind of organization. And uh, the first time I was down there as well, uh, when we were sitting in, in the room for the opening um, the opening keynote and there's, you know, like a thousand conduct people in there. And I thought, wow, you know, we could really learn from this. And so I, I felt that, you know, from that point on, it was really important that we got involved and we could, you know, share and, and collaborate and, and, and learn together. And, uh, so, um, I felt that, It was important to, and and I know you really worked on the international front, uh, I thought it was important to really get involved in the organization and and to try to sell it to other Canadian institutions to really get involved, embrace it, and let's learn together. So at that uh, business meeting a couple years back, I felt that, you know, as well as a few others, not everybody, but... uh, felt that we needed to develop something uh, in Canada and, and so that other Canadians and Canadian institutions felt part of the organization and, and recognized and not just part of a state and things like that. And then we could work together in Canada to grow the organization and, and to share information.
0: And it's working. We had, I think, close to 25 or 30 Canadian members come down for this year's conference.
2: So really mm-hmm. And hopefully that'll grow. I, I know that, you know, it, it's hard at times to to cross that border because it is a lot more expensive and a lot of the institutions are uh, tight for for funds right now. And uh, it, it's difficult. But in in my opinion, it's, it's well worth it because there's a lot of good learning going on at those meetings.
0: What's going on in the region itself? Uh, what conversations are uh, Canadian conduct officers having kind of offline or in its own context?
2: Really, right now, uh, the thing that we've been dealing with a lot is the sexual violence, you know? And, uh, and this is where... I've seen things change because when I first started in conduct, you know, sexual violence really it wasn't on, on the map the way it is now. I'm not saying it didn't occur, but it wasn't reported and, and we didn't know it was happening as much as it really was. And when I first started, we were dealing more with um you know pub pub issues people being drunk and uh and things like that now now the focus is uh is you know on we deal with a lot of sexual violence we deal with uh mental health issues so we're you know that's what the conversations uh here have been uh over the last little while
0: and you said pub issues can you go into that a little bit more
2: uh, the pub issues was just like being drunk and stupid, uh, you know, fights and uh, being, uh, having drank too much and people urinating where they're not supposed to. Just really dumb things.
0: So kind of more public drunk people issues. do. Right. Well. Yeah. And you're in Ontario, so the drinking age in Ontario is 19. Is that correct?
2: 19. Yes.
0: 19, but 18 in your neighboring province.
2: Yeah, it's uh, it's 18 in Quebec.
0: And uh, one of the things that Jordan mentioned was a challenge where his campus being, you know, a bit north of you in Ottawa is uh, that students can take a 30 minute cab ride over the border. Do you struggle with anything similar given that you're a little bit farther?
2: No, no. The, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, okay, they're, they're going over there so that, that they can you know, I mean, participate in a the, in the bar situation. But if when it comes to alcohol, um, if they're underage, they're going to find a way to get it.
0: Sure. So very similar to what we're seeing down in the States.
2: Absolutely. Sure. it's no difference that way.
0: So other than the, the rise of marijuana and pub issues, you mentioned sexual violence. uh I believe the bill is 138, is that correct? Bill 138?
2: Well, it's it's, it's no longer, it was actually 132, 132. but uh, uh, it's, it's, it's no longer a, a bill, it's, it's, it's a law now. It's
0: officially a law. And how mm-hmm. has that changed the requirements of what you do as an institution?
2: Well, basically what it's, uh, it's forced us to do is to create new policy uh, speaking specific to sexual violence, and uh, and there's a few more reporting things. Now, see that this is a little bit different than in the states where our reporting is, is much more local to to the like the board of governors. They want to know all the numbers and and complaints and issues that we've been dealing with. We don't have to report to any kind of uh, uh, government organization.
0: Right. There's no Clery Act equivalent in Canada.
2: No. No, and and uh, not all of pro- our provinces have have actually been legislated to do this. Uh, I, I know uh, British Columbia and ha- has just uh, recently uh, uh, had to um, create their own policies, and I believe Alberta and Manitoba just in the last actually few months has been uh, has to uh, create their own policies. But uh, yeah, so it's it's. It's um it's slowly going across the, the whole country and, and it's interesting because I've been having conversation with some of our um Western uh, provinces uh, about how we you know deal with things there.
0: So your colleagues our policies. maybe at yeah. UBC or something are, are working with a bunch yeah. different challenges.
2: Similar challenges, but they're just a little bit behind us. Okay. Right. So so they, they want to know what we've done. You know, when it comes to, like, bystander intervention, too, where we've been doing that as well.
0: Excellent. So it sounds like a lot of the trends in student behavior are similar in the U.S. as they are in Canada right now. Yeah.
2: You know, the way I described it is we were probably about, you know, 10 years behind you. <laughs>
0: Jordan said the same thing, but uh, he also mentioned that the benefit of feeling a bit behind is being able to watch what's on the horizon um, as it goes. Oh,
2: absolutely. (laughs) And it makes it easy.
0: It makes it easier, potentially sometimes I think more difficult too. But uh, in looking at kind of how you've watched the U.S. struggle with some of these issues, what lessons have you taken away in terms of how you want to improve upon what you're seeing happening? How I want to improve what I see happening. So, as you translate the practice from how U.S. administrators might be handling sexual violence cases or investigations, kind of, what are your biggest takeaways of what's going well down here, and and what have you adapted and adopted uh, for your own context?
2: You know, a lot of the um, a lot of the interviewing skills, and and uh, when we talk about trauma. You know, I, I've taken that away because I, it took me a while to uh, to really understand how to do that properly. I take a, a different approach to when I speak with uh, complainants now.
0: Certainly. The trauma-informed investigation approach is something that anyone who's doing those interviews should take time to learn before they continue with that practice.
2: Yeah, so that, that was probably the biggest takeaway for me. Sure.
0: Now, thinking about programming and other education, ongoing education. Uh, What are you doing in the Canadian region um, that's specific for the Canadian student conduct officer?
2: Uh, I'm trying trying to organize uh, another event in in the fall, actually, to get us in Ontario anyways and open it to... uh, the entire country together to to talk about issues in, in conduct. I know we were successful in having an ASCA event uh, a couple of years ago where we brought uh, almost 200 people together, and uh, I, I'm trying to get something like that again for the fall because it, it's, it's been hard because... Um, you know, really, to get things rolling the way I kind of expected it here, because you know the, the distances and just everybody's so busy, you know, with their their own work. It's 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 hard, but um, I, I think there's a need to get together and collaborate and and share information and share experiences and 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 really to help each other out.
0: I can imagine the distance is quite a barrier. Uh, you have five time zones in Canada, I believe. Pardon me. You're you're across five time zones in Canada, correct? Something yeah. like that. Um, so I would imagine it makes things like a drive-in not particularly possible.
2: Well, you, you know what? in in the in the Ontario area, in southern Ontario, anyways, it, we have quite a few institutions. But once you get uh, west of Ontario, uh, they're a lot more sporadic. So. You know, it's nice if we could get everybody together. But what I'd like to do is, you know, to see at least maybe one in the in the central, one in the west, and one in the east. You know, and 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 share information. We could always put it online and or or have uh, some kind of um, uh, you know uh, webinar or something where people can participate remotely.
0: I like your ambition. I'm excited to see where you go with it.
2: Yeah, I, it is ambition, and I hope we're successful in executing it.
0: Definitely. Well, let's get back to you as an individual conduct officer. Can you remember a case or recall a case that you had with a student that you came out of going, "Wow, this is why I do this work," and I am so glad I got to meet this individual.
2: Sadly, I, I don't have a lot of those cases. <laughs> you know, I I wish I had uh, some really good ones, but I there is one person. Uh, who does come to mind? And this person came into our office, and he was like on a campus tour, and he was with a couple other students, and and basically the initial introduction it was kind of shocking because basically he told me he'd probably be meeting us at a later time because he'd get into a fight or he'd get thrown out or something like that, right? So I was like, oh, okay, you know, and he happened to be a student here at the King campus, but I've been watching him over the last two years. And, and this guy has been doing really, really good. He got involved uh, with varsity. He's, he's really doing well in school. He always comes by and, and says hi to me. So, you know, I, that, that's kind of like a, something that makes me feel good when I, I keep in contact with students who are, who are doing well, who haven't gotten in trouble, who I thought might've gotten into trouble. And uh, so, so that's, you know, that, that kind of, uh, that, that's, something that makes me feel good yeah. about what we do
0: that's a major success when you have a student who meets you at orientation and says hey I'll be in your office and then you you've been able to watch them blossom into a successful person
2: yeah and exactly and so so that makes me yeah. but you know I've had on, on the other side to that too where you know it, it hasn't worked out all that well
0: yeah for sure you know yeah. I I think we've all run across cases where we We're looking for the student to make some change um, and they're not necessarily in a place where they want to do that or can do that. Um, And we just, we always hope that at the end of that, uh, they will find that opportunity, even if it's not necessarily within the four years that they're with us.
2: Yeah. And, and you know, it's not it's not so much about them to come by and say, hey, thanks, you know, I really appreciate you did that to me. But if I've dealt with somebody even uh, once or may- maybe a couple of times and I see them walk across that stage and get their diploma, they don't have to say anything to me, but I feel good.
0: That is the best moment. You know, we started a program here at NYU where we celebrate the successes of students who've come through the conduct process and uh, celebrate them as they persist their graduation and we do some recognition and acknowledgement for them. It's it's a really great way to reconnect with our conduct students. Um and they don't expect to hear from us. Yeah. Well Al, what would you want the the kind of and again speaking in very general terms, what would you want the average US American administrator to know about student conduct in Canada?
2: I think that we're dealing with issues that are very similar and we're all, we're, we're very open to uh, conversation to share experiences uh, um, because I think we can learn from each other. And uh, I think that's important that, you know,
0: and What are your pearls of wisdom or your words of wisdom for folks that are listening?
2: Is always keep an open mind, be flexible and keep an open mind. And, uh, Because once you have a closed mind and and can't make changes, then you're stuck and and you're behind. For sure.
0: Um, Al, if folks want to get involved with the Canadian region, how can they get a hold of you?
2: Well, they can uh, call me on campus. Um, I'm at Santa Cruz College. Uh, They can reach me at uh four one six four nine one five oh five oh extension two two nine five zero or five five zero zero eight or you can reach me by email at Allen A L A N S T E L N I C K at senecacollege.ca. dot ca.
0: That is uh, great information if you want to get involved with the Canadian region or if you just want to reach out to Al for general conversation and merriment. He's a good person to talk to. You can reach the podcast at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com. That's A-S-C-A-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter at podcast. And I just want to say thank you so much, Al, for sharing your viewpoint with the listeners today.
2: Thank you, Jill, for the opportunity. It's, uh, it's great.
0: Next week on the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, we welcome Scott Schneider from Fisher Phillips, which is a law firm specializing in higher education. Scott will be talking to us about trauma-informed sexual misconduct investigations. And Scott also served as a Gehring Academy faculty track leader for trauma-informed investigations in the summer of 2016. Hope you'll come back and join us. This episode was produced and hosted by Jill Creighton, that's me, co-produced, edited, and mixed by Colleen Mater. Special thanks to New York University's Office of Student Conduct and Community Standards for allowing us the time and space to create this project. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you please like, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and helps us become more visible in the general podcasting community. If you have suggestions 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 for featured guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, please feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at ASCA Podcast or by email at ascapodcast at gmail.com.